Okay, well, at any rate, um, uh, like I say, I don't think I'd have been invited to the golf tournament anyway, but uh, even if I were a golfer. But uh, um, here I am, and I thought I'd like to challenge you with, uh, as, as the summer approaches and the school year uh, sort of grinds uh, painfully to a halt in the case of many of you probably. You know, I'm not teaching this semester, and so it's the strangest thing. I mean, uh, usually I just... Uh, I am so delighted to see the summer. You know, the Lord, Lord really uh, uh, was good to me and, and let me light, live my life out in these little four-month increments, you know, where you get to kind of wipe the slate clean and start over. And, um, but I'm not, uh, I'm not feeling quite the sense of transition that the rest of you are because I've been loafing a whole semester, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, as, we, as we approach the summer, and some of you, your, your graduation, you'll not be with us uh, uh, in years to come. I just want to challenge you uh, with Paul's testimony in Philippians 1. Very simple message. Uh, you remember that in the book of Acts, Paul goes on, four, on three missionary journeys, and at the end of that third missionary journey, he is arrested in, Ro- in uh, Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple, and there is a false charge against him, and as a result, he's, he's taken uh, prisoner and uh, held there in Rome, for, in Jerusalem, for a short while. And then he's hauled off to Caesarea because of a plot against him there in Jerusalem. And he's held in Caesarea for two years. He's done nothing wrong. He's innocent of any charge. As a matter of fact, they're having trouble come up with anything to charge him with. But he's held there because there's a crooked procurator there in, Rome, in Caesarea who, uh, uh, who wants to take a bribe. And Paul won't give him a bribe. And so finally, Paul, as is his right and privilege as a Roman citizen, a freeborn Roman citizen, Paul appeals to Caesar, and as such, and that, by the way, is important because to, to the context in front of us, because the fact is that it was because Paul had been tried and there was no decision forthcoming that he had the right to appeal to Caesar. But by Roman jurisprudential law, that is by the judicial system in, in Rome, when he appealed to Caesar, he became the personal responsibility of Caesar. Caesar, by the way, at this time, as you know, was Nero. Uh, Nero at this time, when Nero had been uh, emperor for about five years at this time, he was, he had begun well. But as most of you probably know, Nero became pretty much a, a functioning madman as he, uh, in the course of his rule. And, uh, uh, but at any rate, Nero had, as, as, as uh, Caesars before him had done, had about him a very special elite crack military uh, uh, unit called the Praetorian Guard. And he would take the best of the soldiers, and they became his personal attendants and uh, uh, bodyguards and so on. They were his, and then when he would march in state, they would go before him and so on. And so and the point is that when Paul appealed to Caesar... Nero became personally responsible for Paul and therefore would have assigned Paul to Paul certain of the Praetorian Guard. That's important because those Praetorian Guard uh, have access, uh, those soldiers who are part of the Praetorian Guard have access to Caesar himself, to the inner circles of the Roman uh, court and so on. But at any rate, so Paul appeals in uh, in the book of Acts uh, to, to Caesar and as a result he's put on a ship that ship, of course, is blown off course, and he spends an, and shipwrecked, and he spends the winter there in Malta. You remember all that? And then finally, he makes his way to Rome. Now, there's one other thing I, I want to lay out just before we start here, get into the text. By the time Paul got to Rome, 
there was already a functioning, healthy church there. He had written to it earlier. Remember, about four years earlier, when he was in Corinth, he had written an epistle. We know it as the Roman epistle. He had written it from Corinth, and 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 evidently there, the, the church was 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 going well. Now, it's my persuasion, and and some of you, especially bright and aggressive students, might remember that. Uh, by the way, is it chilly here this morning? Maybe we got to do the wave about every ten minutes, huh? You just uh, <laughs> if you get chilly and you got to do a few jumping jacks, well, just help help yourself. We'll we'll understand. But at any rate. Um, but the point is that uh, uh, Paul had written to Roman, and those of you who were with me in the survey, perhaps you remember, it's my persuasion that the church in Rome was actually started as a result of converts of Paul, people who had been saved in other, other parts of the Roman Empire and then had moved to the city of Rome. There was a great deal of movement to the city of Rome at this point in history, and that they, they had gathered together and formed a church. So Paul counted it his church, even though he was not there to personally establish that church. That makes sense to you? He had led these people to the Lord in various... We know from this is the main line of evidence that I, that I, to which I appeal for that, is that we know from Roman records that at this point in history, there was a tremendous influx of emigrants uh, into the city of Rome from other parts of the empire. And the four cities from which most of those people came, or more than any other. The four cities which more than any other supplied emigres into Rome were Alexandria in Egypt. That doesn't help me a bit, so forget that one. But the next three are Ephesus, Ephesus, Corinth, and Antioch of Syria. Now think about it. Those are the three churches, the three cities, I'm sorry, where Paul spent more time than any other cities, right? On his third missionary journey, he spent a whole three years in Ephesus. Remember that? On his second missionary journey, he spent 18 months in Corinth. Antioch of Syria was the sending church where Paul had been recruited by uh, Barnabas and where Paul had uh, uh, ministered there for over a year. So here you have these three cities where Paul was so influential and they're pumping so many people into the city of Rome. And now the church springs up and Paul feels com- Paul, who says that he doesn't build on anybody else's foundation, feels comfortable right to it. So... The point is, if that you wonder what that's got to do with anything, Paul comes to Rome. He is held there for two years in his own hired house. That's in Acts 28, 30, and 31. And during those three years, you remember, he writes four epistles. And they are, he, he writes three of them sort of at the very beginning of his, of his uh, uh, imprisonment there in Rome, and that's Colossians and Ephesians and uh, Philemon. And then later on, in that same imprisonment, Paul writes Philippians. And that, I think, is terribly, terribly significant because if you can put all that together, that means that by the time he writes this epistle, he has been a prisoner for some five years, at least. That is, he was arrested in Jerusalem unfairly. He was held simply because the Jews wanted to make trouble for him. There was a threat on his life, and therefore he was spirited to Caesarea, where he was held for two years simply because he refused to bribe a Roman official. Then he was he was uh, uh, put on a uh, he appealed to Caesar he was put in a ship he shipwrecked he spent a winter out there in a barbaric island of Malta and then he was finally brought to uh, Rome and there he was held for two whole years waiting trial before Nero. So if there's anybody who's got who's got reason to think that life's pretty much a bummer it's Paul because here the guy has been has been unjustly imprisoned held a prisoner for all of this time. And by the same token, 
the believers of that day. You know, it, it is. Have you ever thought about this? The, the tremendous influence, the the almost you'll forgive me. The, uh, the, well, the superhero status. Let's say it that way. That Paul must have enjoyed in first in in, in uh, you know in, say thirty years after Jesus ascended. I, you know, I I wonder if there was anybody in the Mediterranean world who wouldn't have counted Paul at least his spiritual grand great grandfather. You know what I'm saying? I mean, even if you never met Paul, if you're a believer living anywhere in the Mediterranean world, you probably got to say, well, you know, I'm a Christian today because uh, my, you know I was led the Lord by somebody who was led the Lord by somebody who was converted under Paul's preaching. I mean, this man is a superhero. And imagine the trauma that it must have generated and how the Christians of that day must have thought, my goodness, Paul's been arrested. Have you heard? Paul's? Is there any hope? Is there any tomorrow? Paul, the apostle, has been arrested. The one, by the way, who is cranking out the New Testament for us. I mean, take yourself, you know, you're back there in the, uh, in the uh, you know, living, living in that period, and you're dependent upon this upon this, uh, this this written revelation which is being circulated. And to be sure, you have some Gospels, and you hear that uh, one of the companions of Paul, Luke, has put out a, uh, a history of the, of the uh, early church. But the man who more than the other at this time is, is writing books which are authoritative, which are God-breathed, which are inspired, as we, as we use the word, is Paul. So can you imagine, as I say, the trauma? Here, Paul has been arrested. Now he's been a prisoner for some five years. He's got reason to be crying in the soup, if you don't mind, because uh, you know things have, uh, because of the circumstances he's facing. But he writes to the Philippians, and this is, and a key word of this book is what you know. Rejoice. Remember, uh, again and again, 16 times, Paul uses some element of that word. I rejoice in, uh, in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. And uh, obvious, I mean, the, the application is obvious. We are faced with decisions and difficulties and points of confusion, all this sort of thing, and uh, uh, disappointments of life, and yet we should be able to say with Paul. But why was it? Well, let me walk you through. Begin in verse 12, if you will, chapter 1. Uh, Philippians 1 and verse 12, I'm reading, of course, from the sainted and authorized version, as you know, but uh, you just follow along in whatever defective version you happen to have with you. I don't care. That's ah, just my little thing, you know. I don't. Just, uh, but he says, I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. Now, again, the things, you see, one of the reasons, obviously, you know what, I should tell you too here. I'm interrupting myself, can you imagine? But. Uh, uh, forgive me, but uh, remember that this church, the Philippian church, is the church which has been more attentive to Paul, which has which has uh, never caused him any grief. There's never any evidence that heresy infected this church. He doesn't have to. There's a, there's a, there are a couple of women who aren't getting along, and Paul has to encourage them to uh, to think more highly of others than of themselves, and so on. In Philippians two, but this is a church which just seems to have almost uninterruptedly rejoiced Paul's heart. And uh, they have they have watched over him. That is, they've sent uh, uh, money to attend to his needs and so on. I personally think, though it's it's a stretch and I can't prove it to you, that remember in Acts 28 when it says that Paul was two whole years in his own hired house? I think very possibly the Philippians were paying the rent on that. I think very possibly that's part of what this letter is all about. So thank him. See, as a Roman citizen, he had the he had the opportunity, if he could afford it, to hire an apartment rather than living in a dungeon. But he was—he had no money of his own. Somebody must have provided that for him, and I think very possibly it was the Philippian church, at least in part. But at any rate, however you like it, this is, this church would take care of him. But they were concerned for him, 
And they, you know, this is, this is information regarding his own circumstances. So he says to them, I would, as I say there in verse 12, as, as I read, I want you to understand that all these things have happened unto me, which what? Which are what? They are all the, 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 the arrest, the, uh, the uh, imprisonment, the shipwreck, and so on. All of these things have fallen out, rather, onto the furtherance of the gospel. Now, folks, do you understand? Just think about that for a minute. All these things have fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. Do you see what a marvelous confidence Paul has in the providential hand of God? By what human measure could we suggest that the gospel was better served having Paul in prison than having him free? Doesn't it seem like, Paul, wait a minute here, we would all be much better much advantaged if you were free. Certainly we can't say that it's an advantage. That's what Paul says. They have fallen out to the further. The gospel has progressed more dramatically for my having been in prison than otherwise, if I hadn't been. Well, how is that? And Paul spells some things out. He says, number one, in verse three, my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Now, that's a remarkable verse. The word that Paul uses there for palace is actually the word praetorium. And it speaks of the inner circles of the Roman uh, uh, hierarchy, the, 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 uh, the, the court where the emperor ruled. And, you know, we have, and it's, it's tradition, and it's not entirely dependable, I'll, I'll confess that to you, but we have a very early tradition about a woman who had been a paramour of Nero Caesar's. That is, she had been carrying on an illicit relationship with him, and she came under the hearing of the gospel because of soldiers. Now, the point is, do you see, see what's at stake here? That's why I mentioned to you before. Paul was assigned, to, uh, Paul appealed to Caesar. Caesar would have assigned him some of the Praetorian Guard. Now, folks, according, and it's hard to say for sure, but if, if, if the protocols of Roman military uh, uh, duty and so on can be trusted. I mean, if we can go back and look at the way they, they, they uh, what they demanded of their soldiers and so on, what this probably meant is that s- soldiers in ships of two or four, it's hard to say for sure, would be assigned to Paul and they probably would be manacled to him in eight-hour shifts. At any rate, they would have to sit there in the same room with Paul eight hours at a time. Now, folks, don't you suppose if you're in a room with Paul for eight hours at a time, you are going to hear the gospel, don't you suppose? And uh, not only that, but I'll tell you something, you are probably going to see a, an absolutely, uh, uh, just a marvelous demonstration of the change which a gospel, the gospel can make in a man's life. And the point is that some of those soldiers probably got saved. And I go back to it, we have this tradition, and how dependable it's hard to say, but this tradition of, a, of this woman who, in fact became a believer because she heard the gospel through the Praetorian Guard. Where did those Praetorian Guard get it? Undoubtedly right here. And she became a marvelous testimony and was finally martyred. Nero had her put, her, put to death because, of course, she immediately broke off the illicit relationship with, with Nero and, be, and used what influence she had to spread the gospel, and she finally gave her life. It's interesting, and again, I'm, I'm conjecturing here. I'm putting two and two together, and I may be getting 22, and you have to forgive me for it, but I think... At least it's an interesting conjecture that, uh, and you got to stay with me on this, but Nero, remember, is going to about six years, no, about four years after this, Nero is going to implement a horrible persecution. As a result of that persecution, both Peter 
and Paul are going to die, right? Both Peter and Paul are martyred in connection with what we call the Neronian persecution, which went from uh, October of 64 till, till mid-68. The interesting thing is that Nero, although he tries as emperor, he does everything he can to whip the troops up and get the whole Roman government to, to move against the Christian faith, he's never able to do it. He's frustrated in that he can, he can only... The, the, the persecution that erupts under Nero is very spasmodic. It's very spotty. It's on again, off again here, and not there. And I think the reason is that... I think very possibly, I'm saying to you, that very possibly the reason is that during these years that Paul is a prisoner, he so affects so many in the Roman system that later on when these who are part of Nero's government go out and take offices in various parts of the Roman Empire, they have either A, become believers, or B, they are so powerfully impacted by the testimony of Paul that they refuse to implement Nero's edicts of persecution. Now, again, the, the history is not explicit about that, but it, it, it will work very nicely. And the point is that maybe if you just entertain that as a notion in your head, you can begin to see how God's ways are bigger than ours. His, his, his ways are higher than ours. And, and so God, Paul is able to say, and I don't think Paul fully understands in what way this is true, but he says, I want you to know that the difficulties the trials, the disappointments, the unfair imprisonment, all this sort of thing which have happened to me, all of these things have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel is advantaged by reason of the difficulties. Some of the ways I can identify, some of them I can't. But do you understand the simple lesson is that many times the difficulties, the trials that we face, we may not fully understand. Matter of fact, I don't think you will fully understand exactly how God is going to use all of those things to the furtherance of the gospel, but if you'll simply be obedient to him and trust him for it, I believe they will. That's Paul's point. Well, go a little further. Come back to it. And in, in, in verses 14 and 15, there's a actually 14 through uh, uh, 18, there's a, there's a bit of a tough passage. And I want you to think with me on this here. I know your, your minds are elsewhere, but I'll do this quickly and see if you can make, if I can make this make sense to you. Because this passage is much misused. What happens here, now Paul has said, let's put it in context, Paul has said that, uh, well, no, I've got to give you the context. Verse 14, Paul says, here's another way in which the gospel is advantaged. He says, many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, there were Christians there in Rome who, when they saw Paul's marvelous example of, of a, a zealous testimony for the Lord, they got aggressive themselves. So not only, Paul is saying, not only were, was his gospel able to reach into the inner circles of the Roman system of government, but there were other believers who were emboldened and they got more hungry. And so because of, God, uh, 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 because of God's providences in Paul's life, uh, the gospel was advantaged. But then look at verse 15. Paul says this. Now, i got to tell you, this, this little passage here, 15 to 18, has been construed in an unhappy way by many. And I want to I straighten it out in your heads if I can. He says in, in the King James here, of course, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. Now, the one preach Christ of contention. They have a contentious or jealous or competitive spirit. That's the meaning of the word. One, the, some preach Christ out of a competitive spirit, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bond. Now, the others, they preach Christ out of a spirit of love, 
uh, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. And then Paul says this, verse 18. This is the verse that's been, I think, unfortunately twisted. He says, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now, the thing that's been done with that verse is, out of that verse has come the notion that no matter what heresy a man embraces, as long as he chants the name of Christ somewhere in the delivery of his message, we should embrace it. Are you familiar with that? No matter if a man preaches all sorts of abject heresy, if he loves Christ, who in the world cares? Because didn't Paul say, no matter how they preach, as long as they preach Christ, I'm satisfied. Have you ever heard that? Or is that a strange... I mean, that, 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 that verse is used probably as much as any other, along with the 1 Corinthians 9 passage, become all things to all men, to, to validate all sorts of, I think, absolutely sub-biblical and sometimes heretical and dangerous so-called gospel. And, and the point you need to see, folks, am I making sense to you here? Uh, the point you need to see is that heresy is not in this passage. Paul is not saying, oh, I don't care. You work, do you have to work very hard or look very long to find out how Paul feels about people who preach heretic, uh, you know, heretical messages? Paul goes after them uh, you know, with, with both feet. So, so Paul is not going to put up with heresy. What is at stake here? Well, again, I'm going to conjecture just a little bit. I'm doing an awful lot of that this morning. But uh, I think this is the point. Remember what I told you before, that by the time Paul arrived in Rome, there was already a functioning church there. That church would have raised up leadership. Let me, let me just use it, let me just develop a bit of it. Say this is the Roman church. And we've been here for some, some years now. We all know of Paul. We all jealously uh, you know, guard his, his truth and his, his uh, epistles. We love the epistles that have come to us. Uh, he's already written several epistles that have found circulation before he actually writes one to us. Some years ago, he wrote an epistle to us, and it outlines the whole doctrine of salvation, and we cherish it, right? So here we are in Rome. It's about 61 A.D., we, most of us, we all know of Paul. Many of us have met Paul. Some of you may have been led to the Lord by Paul. But you moved here to Rome, and we've had our own church, and Paul has never been here. Paul says that in Romans 1. Remember, he goes on and on about how I, I long to come and see you, but the spirit of the Satan hindered me and so on. So Paul's never been here. But here's the point. Watch this. In the meanwhile, we've been here for these years. Leadership has been raised up. Say, Bookman's the leadership. So I'm the leader of the church, see? And... When there's some sort of a question, well, you know, you talk about you come to me, see. And when there's some sort of an issue that has to be settled, I'm kind of in charge here. I, I, may, there's probably more than one of me. Okay, I, I got to remember where I am. So, you know, Bill, I don't want to talk like a Baptist here. So there are three of us. There we're all elders. I, okay, but uh, the point is that there's there's uh, there's you know there's 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 local leadership. Now here's my point. One day the word gets out that the Apostle Paul has arrived, to be sure, under guard, to be sure after having spent uh, a winter in some mysterious island out in the water somewhere. But nonetheless, Paul has arrived, and he's, he's, he's got an apartment down the street. And what does Acts 28 say? He receives all that come in unto him, answering whatever questions you have, spending all the time. He's got time on his hands. You want to go visit Paul? You can go visit Paul. Now, the next time you got a question, where are you going to go? See the point? You know, Bookman's a little jealous about this whole thing, because after all, I used to be the big kahuna, and now every time you got a question, you run. I think that's exactly probably the dynamic 
that's behind what's going on here. So what you have is not people who, who are preaching some heretical gospel. They're preaching the truth, but they're doing it out of a jealous spirit. That's exactly the word that's used there, some out of contention, has the idea of jealous or competitive spirit. Now, so now the picture changes a little bit. The point is, Paul says, here I am, a prisoner in Rome. I believe that my having been made a prisoner actually has fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel because, number one, the gospel has reached into the inner circles of the Roman uh, Empire, but beyond that, there are some who have been made the more bold to preach Christ. Now some of them do it out of a jealous spirit. They're jealous of me, and they hope to add affliction to my bonds, and, and, and maybe there's some mean things said about me, and who knows what all, but that's all right. Because after all, all I care about is that Christ is preached. I'm not going to get involved in that sort of competitive spirit. So the point is, if you don't mind, uh, what you're looking at, and by the way, by the way, might I say that that competitive spirit is absolutely uh, epidemic in Christian circles today. I, I remember a, a uh, there was a, this is a story out of my past, but uh, uh, there was a, uh, when I was teaching in Minnesota, an evangelist came, and he had been holding meetings down in Florida, and he said he was holding meetings for this guy, and uh, it was back in the days, maybe most of you can't even remember this here, I'm, Back in the days when everything, everybody wanted to have the biggest Sunday school, and you ran buses all over the countryside, and we had this joke about uh, the preacher in Cincinnati and suing the preacher in Texas because their Sunday school buses had bumped in, and you know, I don't remember, I won't even call it name. But at any rate, uh, but the point is that uh, this, uh, this, this evangelist said that he was holding meetings for this guy, and uh, he had the second biggest Baptist church there in his town. And the guy who had the biggest Baptist church in that town had that on the side of his Sunday school buses. You know, Jacksonville's biggest Sunday school, something like that. Largest Sunday school. And, and the guy, the, the evangelist said that he was talking with this preacher once. Now, are you with me? He's with the second biggest. And he said, yeah, they got to talking, and he said, the man evidenced such a hateful attitude toward that other pastor. I wonder what was going on. And uh, if there was some sort of heresy at stake or whatever. And he says, Finally, he got to the bottom and he says there was no heresy, whatever, but he said the, the man was absolutely convulsed by jealousy over the fact. And he said, he said, you know, every day when I get up, this is what, this is what stuck with me. He said, every day when I get up, he says, today, this is the pastor of the second largest Sunday school. He says, today I am going to live with one goal in mind. I'm going to minister and live with one goal in mind to make that man take that off the side of his Sunday school bus so I can put it on the side of my Sunday school bus. Now, you see, you know, you see what I'm saying? That, that competitive, I, to me, the man should be saying, I hope he never, ta- I hope if I get three times as big, he gets four times as big, right? I, I hope no matter what God does in my little corner of the world here, that he does even more over there, I'll rejoice in it. But that, that competitive spirit that, uh, that longs to be noticed in the ministry, that, that really, uh, again, it, it, it is absolutely epidemic. And, 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 and I think it's very timely what Paul says there. I think that's exactly what Paul was facing. But, but let me bring it way back to it. The point is that Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, here are two, circum- well, here are, uh, two realities of life which might have been a horrible discouragement to me. Number one, my circumstances. I've got these circumstances. Here I'm a prisoner, and I'm it's unjust, and I've been, you know, here I wound up on an island for all, you know, all these things have happened in my life, 
And all because I was just preaching the gospel, I didn't do anything to bring this on. And the whole Roman system was, was marshaled to find something to accuse me of. They couldn't even find anything to accuse me of. And yet here I am, a prisoner, and I may die. Paul, by the way, in Philippians, is entertaining the real possibility that I might die. Remember later in the same chapter, he says, I don't know for sure. And so here Paul is facing death. He's, he's got these circumstances which uh, seem horribly discouraging. And then secondly, he's facing criticism. Evidently, there in the, in the, in the, in the ministry in Rome, he's a prisoner, not, not, that, not enough. Some of the believers in Rome are so jealous of him that uh, they're preaching in a way that is, is designed to add affliction to his bonds, however you want to put it. They're trying to make life more miserable. More, that's what he says. They're trying to make more miserable for, life more miserable for him than it was in the first place. Hope 20 and 21, obviously a high point of the, the epistle. But this is what I want to leave with you, and we're done. Verse 19, Paul says, pick it up in verse 19, I know that this shall turn to my deliverance, my salvation. He's talking about being delivered from prison there. And he says, I'm confident that this shall turn to my, my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ as God continues to minister to me with His Spirit. And as you pray for me, I know that God will deliver me from all these things. But then Paul says, and I love this verse, in verse 20 he says, which is, in, is, is absolutely in, consistent with, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Time out. Do you have a shame? Most of you? Is there another word? Ashamed means almost without exception. It has a different meaning in the Bible than what you and I are used to, and you have to get used to it. To, ashamed, to be ashamed in our vernacular to us means to be humiliated, uh, to be embarrassed by something. To be ashamed in the Bible always means to be put to flight, to be defeated. That's the idea. So it's not just to be embarrassed about something, but rather to be ashamed in the sense of being defeated in battle. So Paul says, I know that according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing will I be defeated. None of this will have the effect of defeating me or destroying my testimony or my ministry. In nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, here it is, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Here's where I'm taking with this whole thing, folks, and with this, honestly, I'm done. This is what J. Oswald Sanders calls the master passion. He, this, this, this verse right here he appeals to as Paul's master passion, by which he means the passion, the longing, the desire, which has so mastered Paul's spirit that it eclipses all other things. Paul is faced with all of these circumstances that are so lugubrious, so disappointing and, and, and desperate. He has this criticism from, from brethren who should have been an encouragement to him. But none of that particularly affects him because of this master passion that has gripped his heart. And that's what he says there in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation. That's a very interesting word. It's, it's, uh, it's used only here in the New Testament. It's, it's actually three little Greek words strung together. And it has the idea of craning the neck, stretching the neck. And it's used, the word earnest expectation. Do you have something like that? What do you have? Earnest expectation. What does the NASB got? Who's got the NASB? Pardon? Is it earnest expectation? Okay, I want to make sure we're all on the same page there. But that word, according to my earnest expectation, the word, it's, it's interesting, it's used by Josephus, just as an illustration. It's used by Josephus. He's describing the siege of Jerusalem in, uh, in, in uh, 70 A.D. 
And he says that there was a, the Romans were trying to make a breach in the wall and, uh, you know, trying to drive through the wall, and they finally did. They were able to make a breach in the wall, and the Jews who were still in the city determined that it would be safer if they moved everybody to a different part of the city. But in order to do that, they would have to go right past that breach in the wall. And uh, Josephus says that they determined that they would do it just as the sun began to come up in the morning so they'd have daylight, but before the enemy soldiers roused. So what they did is they got all these people ready to flee across this opening, and they put a couple of sentries on the, on the wall, and they told those sentries, now there's going to be all this commotion going on behind you, but you just watch the horizon because if any Romans stir, we want to get these people back in, into shelter. And so Josephus goes on, he uses this word, he says those sentries stood there and their earnest expectation was the Roman camp. And the idea is they just set their eyes on that Roman camp, watching it and focusing on it to the, to, to the, to the neglect, to, the, you know, to where they, they just ignored all the commotion around. That's exactly the point in Paul's life. That makes sense to you? Paul says, there is one thing which has so gripped, which has so consumed my horizon. There is one thing which is so all important to me it's my earnest expectation. I have set my confidence and my hope upon it. It has so totally consumed me that all these other things really mean nothing. What things? The prisoner, you know, the shipwreck, the, the criticism. So what? As long as this is being fulfilled. And what is that earnest expectation? Look at it there in the verse. It is that Christ might be magnified in, my, in me, in my body, whether by my life or my death. So Paul is so consumed by this one longing that Christ, you know what it means for Christ to be magnified? I mean, obviously, he gets bigger. And the idea is that when people look at Paul and see his life, they have a more accurate and more compelling image of who Jesus is than they ever could have had they not known Paul. So Paul says, I'm going to live my life out with this one consuming desire, this passion which has mastered all other concerns. It has gripped my heart so that nothing else is ultimately of any importance, and that is that Christ might be magnified in me. And folks, let me just challenge you. That is not only the secret to effective ministry, if there is a secret. It is the key, if you don't mind. It is also the secret to contentedness in life. Because as long as you are consumed, what did Jesus say? Remember what Jesus said? He said a lot of things, I know, but remember what Jesus said? He said, this, this verse always compels me, it's one of the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? They shall be filled. And the word simply means satisfied. Now, folks, that's almost a formula. And you know, the world has a lot of formulas. But Jesus never said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after riches. You know why? You'll never be satisfied. No matter how much you got, read the book of Ecclesiastes. The more you got, somebody else has got a little more, you're jealous of that. Blessed is the man, he never said, blessed is the man who hungers after power. Blessed is the man who hungers after, after uh, 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 sexual fulfillment or whatever. You know why? Because that cannot, will not satisfy but he did say, blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts after a right relationship with God, because if that's the thing that absolutely compels you, guess what? God's going to satisfy that. And so that's why Paul, from a prison cell in, not from a prison, from an imprisonment in Rome after two years, could say, rejoice, 
And again, I say rejoice. The things that have happened unto me have all fallen out to the further into the gospel. And all of these circumstances and all of this criticism really means nothing for this reason. There's only one thing that's ultimately important to me in life, and that is that Christ might be magnified in me, whether by life or by death, makes no difference. And therefore, Paul could say, rejoice. I'd submit to you, I'd compel you to, to allow the Spirit of God to work in your life and your heart, young people, to, as, as time goes by, in a greater and greater way, and I would be, I would certainly be uh, entirely less than, than honest if, if I were to suggest that, that in any sense this is true in my life. I don't mean to, in any sense with which I'm satisfied. But as time goes by and even as I think sometimes we struggle to find satisfaction in areas that the Bible either forbids or warns us against and so on, more and more we come to the realization the only thing important in life is my relationship to my Savior. And as that is the only compelling force in my life that, re, that, that just, just, just eclipses all other things, we are able to say, this is my earnest expectation that Christ might be magnified in me, whether by life or by death. God's going to be able to use us, and God's going to be able to fill us. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then I believe Mark's going to come. Is that right? Okay, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the testimony of this man, Paul, and we thank you for the way that the gospel was not only proclaimed, but was, was lived out by that man. And we thank you for this testimony that we have here in Philippians 1, and we realize that because he indeed, did indeed endure those difficulties of life and test your grace and your power and your ability to satisfy, he is able to powerfully and dramatically compel us to live our lives out by that same principle. So, Father, I'd pray that that might be the spirit of each one. And as we look forward to the end of the school year and all the difficulties that are attended upon that, and then as we look forward to the, to the summer and many who will not be back in this place and will be going on to other challenges in life, Father, might your spirit just impress upon us in a powerful way the absolute necessity of setting our eyes upon you, Father, and upon our relationship to you in order that, indeed, you might be magnified in us. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Mark.